slightly new setup. <laughs> this was actually supposed to be the episode, like, I, I was supposed to have this setup ready to go for a couple episodes ago, and then there were delays, and then I needed an adapter, and I, I've only got so much time to record, as you guys know, so I kind of had to go along with just living with what, what, you know, the old setup. Let me know what you think, as ever, curious of your thoughts, it's probably crap, I understand, but I'm doing the best I can with what limited I've got. Let's talk about the episode. This is a lot of people's favorite episode, yes? How many of you in, in, in comments right now really like this episode? I like this episode. I don't think I'd say I really like this episode. Because the character stuff is phenomenal, amazing, and fantastic. Very well acted and very well written. Then the dilemma stuff is actively irritating to me. To the point of being bad. Where I'm just like, really? Really? And I mean both sides of the dilemma, the threat of the week in the form of the Orion ship, and the whole thing with Sarek and, excuse me, yeah, Sarek, no, that's right. <laughs> I was having issue because some of the actors kept pronouncing it differently in this episode. I even pulled up the episode Sarek, NTNG, just to double check, like, how do they pronounce it? Okay, okay. The Sarek medical plot, which is just kind of whatever. <sighs> They'd already established that he has parents, Spock has parents, and they'd already given tiny little tidbits in it in two episodes prior to now. And Fontana reached out to Roddenberry and said, I, I want to flesh that out more. I want to do more with it. And he was like, yeah, okay, sure, why not? I'm totally down. That leads to this episode. And the other funny thing about this is this episode is actually, in some ways, a bottle episode. Not Not fully. I don't think it would fully qualify. But to give you an idea, remember how those budget issues, which are only going to keep getting worse the further into the show we get? Yeah. Um, they couldn't even do a beaming effect for Sarek joining the ship. That's how low on the budget they were. One beaming transition effect was simply not in the cards. That's why they had the shuttle. You're thinking, well, wouldn't the shuttle be so much more expensive? No, if you remember, I mentioned way back in when, you know, when they first actually showed the shuttle that... All the shuttle footage in the whole show is from that show. So they just repeat it at that point. They just they just play it back. It costs them very, very little. It's just a little bit of editing time at that point and some dubbing. So, no, that saved a lot of money. You'll also notice there's no location shots, even though there was originally planned to be. And there were a couple other things, like the ship, which was supposed to be there, and that was axed. So the entire episode occurs entirely on the Enterprise, pre-existing sets, which means all of the money goes into the guest stars and the makeup. Now, this is going to sound like strange praise. Should I be this way? It feels weird. Like, for this, is this centered? It kind of is. I'm way over here, though. I need to be, like, I need to figure this out. A anyways, <clears throat> forgive me. I'm kind of off to the side here. I'm not really intending to be. I'm straight on looking right at the monitor, and yet this is apparently to the right. I'm going to have to fiddle with that later. Sorry, guys. I'm going to be off-center today, so for those of you with OCD, this one's for you! The makeup for the time is not what I would call good. You know, it's hard for me to actually qualify it as actually good, but at the same time, my mouse is, is re freaking out on me. It's it, 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 it does what it's supposed to do. With one notable exception, the fact that we see all these different alien races on these non-speaking roles actually does help to flesh out the Federation in general as a concept in a way that it basically hasn't been up until now. 
No, really, think about this. Think about how many alien races have been in the Federation up till now. I'll go ahead and tell you, it's one. Spock. That's it. <laughs> That's the whole totality of alien races in Starfleet up until this point in time. In real life history, obviously, you know, Discovery happens before this and Enterprise happens before this, but you get the point. Yeah. I, by the way, just a few firsts here. First Andorians, first Tellarites, first mention of Starfleet Intelligence, first Ithanites, uh, the first Vulcan Science Academy mention, first mention of the Orion Syndicate. They don't actually call it that. They call them Orion Smugglers. But I think this qualifies to the inclusion of the Orion Syndicate in the series. And, of course, first aliens into the show, into the Federation in general. There's also a lot of other firsts into how the Federation operates and with regards to membership and diplomacy and councils and blah, blah, blah. The most important thing to take away from me, though, is that in order to join the Federation, you have to be voted in. Now, that makes sense. Most confederations of, excuse me, not confederations, most federations of any type, if someone else wants to join, everyone who is currently a member gets a vote on whether they do. That's pretty standard. So the idea that this member world has to, you know, get the vote, okay, I'm, I'm with that. But this is now established as part of how the Federation operates. My point is, this is a lot of firsts. A lot of what we know and think of with regards to Star Trek, at least in part, branches from this episode. So while I do have issues with it, I will absolutely give this credit for being a landmark episode. And as usual, give credit to DC Fontana for being one of the people who actually made Star Trek what Star Trek is. Jane Wyatt also does a great job in this one. The legendary actress who's been in so much stuff, you've probably heard of her before I ever even mentioned the name. And, of course, Mark Leonard is Mark Leonard, who is amazing, as always. He actually got a lot of fan mail about this one, specifically. Go figure. Uh, Pevney directed it. He thought it was okay. Uh, oh, I want to give one other weird special mention to John Wheeler. He actually played Gav. Okay, so I mentioned the makeup. The makeup's not good, but it's not bad either, especially for the time. They make do with what they do, they have, and they put a lot of the characters with the weird makeup in the background, so that you can't really tell what's going on, right? The one, there's, there's one really big exception, there's two really big exceptions to that. One is the Andorians, uh, the main Andorian, who I didn't write down his name. Not the fake one, the real one. That's actually a pretty good makeup job. Like, I, I'm legitimately impressed with what they managed with him. It doesn't really compare to the Enterprise stuff we've already seen by this point, but, I mean, whoop de doo right? That's a show that was made 30 or 40 years later. So... Actually good makeup, especially for the time. Props. It was apparently ludicrously expensive. It was it was apparently one of the most expensive parts of the show, from what I've read. But it looks good. In total contrast to the other exception, the Tellarite. So, yeah, John Wheeler plays Gav. There's no nice way to say it. The man's wearing a mask. It is ridiculously obvious that there's a mask, and the mask holes are visibly in front of his eyes. And you can see him in the mask. And there's no hiding that. Now, granted, I'm watching the remaster version, but I guarantee you, and in fact, I pulled up a copy of the old version just to verify, you could still see that in the old grainy version. It's pretty bad, even by TOS standards. Although, one of the things I find fascinating discussing uh, fictional history is how things develop over time 
kind of by accident. You know, Star Wars is a great example of this. How many elements of Star Wars are world-building, setting-building pieces that came out of just random things because of specific individuals that were involved in the Star Wars trilogy? You know, why, why is Imperial considered to be a British accent? Well, that's because of Peter Cushing. You know, there's just all sorts of little tidbits like that that got developed in over time. Here's an example of this. Mr. Wheeler couldn't see because of the mask. So what he had to do is he had to do this in order to be able to see out the eyes, which means the Tellarite is constantly acting like he's talking down to everyone, and thus the Tellarite mentality is developed. See? This is something that would be taken and run with in a few other things, but most notably Enterprise. In fact, by the time this episode goes live, we might have already started seeing the Tellarites. No, no, we're not really going to see the Tellarites in, until Season 4 of Enterprise. But that is going to be a thing because of one man who couldn't see out the eye holes of his terrible mask. I love discussing this stuff, I really do. Maybe if I scooch a little bit more this way, kind of over here. So your problem is now I've got a tilt... To look at the to look at the camera, right? Just oh, hey, hang on, maybe a bit more this way. We're doing it live. We're doing it live. Screw it. Just kind of set myself right here. Uh, so the episode starts. Kirk has to hunch down to look into a mirror. Why? It's his mirror. Why? Why does he have to? Anyways, <clears throat> uh, I mentioned the budget issue. Uh, Sarek snubs Spock. When Spock gives him the salute, Sarek basically ignores him and then returns the salute to Kirk. And then offered a tour by Spock. He says no. Then Kirk's like, well, since we're here, you should go meet your parents. And Spock's like, yeah, these are my parents. In all the episode, the only dialogue that doesn't pop for me is that line. It feels really clumsily presented to try and get across the idea that this is that these are Spock's parents. The problem is it presupposes the idea that Kirk is unaware of Spock's parentage, which is insane. Even ignoring the fact that Kirk is Spock's friend of many years at this point, it's probably part of his record, which Kirk has probably read. I should also point out that Kirk and Spock have been to Vulcan. So, while that while they were obviously had other things on their mind at the time, you can't tell me that this it is uh, th that he knows nothing about it. Now, I'm only making a point about this to exemplify how good this episode is, because this is as minor of a point as I have to complain about. Well, that and the dilemmas. The finger-holding thing is a nice touch. Doing this, uh, Nimoy himself apparently had contributed to that by suggesting the idea that Vulcans were big on connection and with their hands, and so the two actors decided to do this as their particular showing of a public display of affection, basically, which is kind of cool. So, Sarek, this is actually funny, check this out. Uh, after, you know, Sarek and Spock have another small tiff, and both of them excuse themselves, Kirk's like, what the hell, and just reaches out to Amanda, like, look, okay, just tell me what's freaking going on. This is funny. She responds very diplomatically, oh, Sarek doesn't disapprove of, of Starfleet, then goes out of her way to mention how Sarek disapproves of Starfleet. Hmm. And by the way, for the rest of the episode, it comes up twice more that Sarek actively disapproves of Starfleet. In fact, that is stated outright in a private conversation between him and her. I just find that amusing. because it, No complaint. It makes perfect sense that she would try to, to smooth over that, especially to a Starfleet captain. That would be considered rather rude. 
But it's interesting to think about, isn't it? And again, we have the beginnings of a, of a world-building point. Spock is one of the only Vulcans in Starfleet at this point in history. It's pretty rare, actually, at this point in history. And that makes sense. This is ba Spock is effectively uh, plowing new ground. Uh, plowing might not be the wrong, right word. It's setting up the fields for other Vulcans to eventually become part of Starfleet. By the time of the TNG era, Vulcans in Starfleet are much more common. And in fact, by the DS9 era, we've got the point where we actually have an entirely Vulcan ship. Although I think that was already active by TNG's timeline. But you get the point. By modern Trek, Vulcans are far more prolific. But not here. And this idea that Sarek posits exemplifies why. Well, we don't want to be part of a military. They don't say that word. But that is what they mean. And I quote, We think peace should not depend on force. Is the exact quote. Now, this isn't me being snooty. That makes sense. And it makes sense that it would take a long period of time and a cultural drift, especially for people as hardline traditionalist as the Vulcans are, in order to accept the idea of regularly becoming a part of the military branch of the Federation. Oh, they'll be part of the Federation. But actually joining the troops? Uh -uh. No judgment here. All of this lines up and makes sense. And again, is one of the reasons why I do love this episode in spite of itself. Um, this is when the traditional thing comes up. Uh, Sarek follows in the lines of his father, and he expected Spock to follow in his lines, because that's what you do. You do what your parent did, and then you do what your son did, and then the, it just goes down the line. That's Don't do what your son did. My point is, they do what you did, and then their children do what they did, and then their children do what they did, and so forth and so on. You just follow the line. That is very Vulcan, even here and even now. Remember, that's already been established, at the very least, by a muck time. So the Vulcan traditionalism thing is already part of the setting. So we scooch forward a little bit, <clears throat> and I have a thought about Spock. I'm actually going to save it for later. Just just remember it, okay? So then the uh, Ithanites, I said I'd talk about them briefly. Yeah, the Ithanites show up. I actually don't know how to pronounce that because it's never been said. It's the people with the really gold-looking skin. They come up and they grab the, the key food cubes, you know, because, of course, there's food, key, food cubes. There's always got to be food cubes. One of these days I'm going to figure out what those were, like the props in real life. They almost look like chunks of, like, melon or something. I don't know, that have been spray-painted. Anyways, <clears throat> I mentioned I'd talk about them. They're not actually named in anything ever until Season 4 of Enterprise, when Manny Cotto specifically and personally dubbed them the Ithanites and was actually going to use them for an episode, and then that fell through because of makeup and budgeting reasons. Remember, by Season 4, the show had already been canceled, so, you know... Oh yeah, real quick, just to mention it, I mentioned that I'd say when the show actually got renewed for Season 3 for TOS. It's not yet. In fact, it's arguably much, much, much later than this, which helps to explain a lot of the attitude going in. But anyways. <clears throat> so then we see the Tellarite, already commented on that, and the Andorian, much better makeup. This leads to an actually really cool scene. Check this out. McCoy says, did he ever go out and play as a kid? And... What she does, it is, it's subtle, except for the fact the episode calls attention to it, but she just kind of glances over at Spock, and Spock does this really slow, quiet nod, and then she tells the story. Sarek later chastises her for embarrassing him in public, but she asked permission first. 
I only point that out because it's a very subtle point that indicates to me that she knows her son better than he does. Either way, we get the story. Oh yeah, there's another first thing. Uh, the Selet, the Selot, they, they pronounce it a couple of different ways. Do me a favor, remember, remember that one too. That won't be coming up for a long time, but that is going to be coming up in the future. Either way, Sarek mentions his pride in Spock as an officer. Remember, Spock's a legend. He is actually legendary amongst the Vulcans. That's already established. So the idea that Sarek does take pride in Spock the officer makes sense in the exact same vein that he disapproves of Spock the son. This is something that, frankly, will continue all the way into Unification Part 1 over in TNG. My opinion, obviously. <laughs> Even Spock mentions that. I do miss the arguments. I will miss the arguments. In the end, they were all we had. God, that's sad. Um, so let's talk about politics. I love politics, right? Don't, don't, don't you love politics? Corridan is going to be admitted into the Federation. Okay, well, um, there's a lot of factors that need to be taken into account here. Obviously, the Federation has a wealth of resources, technology, personnel. You know, we, we, we've got good stuff. Hey, I just realized I can, like, do this and not worry about my arms going off. I've, I've trained myself for years to restrict the amount of movement. You notice when I reached for that, I kind of reached under rather than going straight out like this. Because... I'm used to being in the corner, and when my hand just disappears into the green screen, it looks weird, but now I can just do this. What was I talking about? Oh, right! Politics! Now, see, that's a technique. We, we do a little lighthearted thing to try and dissuade any kind of... Uh, not dissuade, to disperse any kind of, you know, hostile feelings or thinkings here. Because the Federation's still burgeoning and developing, and they still need to think about things like resources and uh, throughput, which is a big one. Let, to explain throughput briefly, let's say you have an engine, and it can, it can produce infinite resources of any kind. So congrats, you have infinite resources, right? Kind of. Because infinite actually has two axes. One is source, and one is throughput. And actually, there's technically a third one as well, which is delivery and transit. And a fourth one, which is implementation. But you get, you get the point. Having infinite resources isn't enough, so even if we are to presume the Federation does have infinite resources at this point in history, which they demonstrably do not, it's part of the, the old Trek feel and vibe, even if they did, there's only so much they can generate, because you only have that one generator, right? And you can only push out so much a day. Like, let's say it can produce 14 tons. Uh, that's, that's a bad thing. What would be, like, a physical dimension... Like, like, there's an X amount of tonnage that it can push out a day. And 14 tons might sound like a lot, until you think about how absolutely minuscule that is, even on a planetary scale. Now consider galactic, and you understand the problem of throughput. How much you can get through at any given point in time. It's part of your output. I don't actually, I, I'm guessing it's, it's a combination of through and output. I heard the term before I ever had it explained, so. Either way, the idea then is the Federation needs to be careful about who they allow in, because that's going to be a drain on resources, which are finite, and finite, and finite, and finite, and finite, if you were paying attention to all the points I listed earlier. So, do we let them in? Well, of course we let them in. They have tons of dilithium. And now we see how things kind of line up, don't we? Because we need dilithium. That could increase our resource storage, and a new location means the possibility of more throughput. I mentioned the one generator. Well, one of the ways to solve throughput is to make a second generator. 
By the way, it's worth noting that throughput also could be applied to this whole situation, as in from resource generation to application. So every step in the line there that can be improved increases the width of the pipe. Okay. I'm sorry, I know this is really basic to a lot of you. I just wanted to go into detail because, well, as I've mentioned several times, I'm trying the policy of not assuming you've watched everything I've ever recorded and not assuming that everyone knows everything that I'm talking about because I keep getting complaints about both of those points. I'm, I'm trying to do better, guys, I swear. Nine years into my job, I'm trying to do better. Anyways, <clears throat> or 11 years by the time this video goes live. Yes, I'm recording two years in advance. Shut up. This entire situation it then makes perfect sense why certain Federation personnel would absolutely be so interested in making sure these people get in there. We have another source. We could, we could set up more distribution hubs to gather and collate and send out, and that's awesome. And we need dilithium. That's already well established. This, of course, then leads to the Tellarite who's very upset about this possibility, right? Well, actually, no. That is a complete red herring. If you're paying attention, and, and Sarek says this very early on, the Tellarites just like to argue. In fact, we never actually hear the Tellarite opinion on the matter, and it doesn't matter because the Tellarite was just looking for a fight. So, what do you care about? Though you care about that, well, I'll go against that. It's, it's basic contrarianism, which is something I see on the internet all the time. Hell, I know someone personally who's a contrarian. Two people. I just realized I know two people who are contrarians. Oh my gosh. I need to know less people. Ugh. This finally leads to the death of Gav. <gasps> no, Gav, he's dead. We'll never see through the eye holes on his mask again. Who could possibly have done this? Well, someone with the knowledge and skill and strength could, which means Sarek could. He's a suspect. Okay, real talk for a second. Sarek is absolutely a suspect, and he absolutely didn't do it. I like that the episode doesn't really spend any time and effort on the fact that he's totally a suspect. It's just there so that they can interact with him and find out about his crippling physical injury. Now you're probably thinking, well, why the runaround to figure that out? Because the writer, Miss Fontana, knows what Vulcan pride means. Sarek could never just openly discuss things. In fact, you'll notice, when first confronted about being a suspect, he insists he was in meditation, something that Amanda mentions he's done before. Later we find out that several times before, and now he's had the Vulcan equivalent of a heart attack. And he's been hiding it, even from his wife. So, of course, there needs to be a, a circumstantial situation that just kind of stumbles into this discovery, because otherwise he simply wouldn't reveal it. It would be out of character. Point to Miss Fontana. Anywho, <clears throat> uh, so there's this great bit on the, the bridge where Kurt comes over and says, I'm sorry, and Spock says, well, no, what Spock does is he hesitates a moment, and then he says, yes, it could be a very great loss for us. Spock very clearly cares about his father and his father's opinion of him. This is made adamantly clear later on in the episode for a scene I'll get to in just a minute. I want to save that for later because it's kind of a separate thing. So the way he deflects that is brilliant. And, of course, he does that because not only is he in public, but it's a thing he would probably deflect in general. He might admit that in private to Kirk. Maybe. And that's just a, a measure of exactly how close he really is to Kirk. But either way, he deflects and says, nope, nope, nope. This then leads to the diagnosis which Spock and Sarek make without poor McCoy. So, this then leads to the episode falling apart. Everything up until this point has been gold. 
just absolute awesome amazing. The only complaints I can have are the fact that Kirk didn't know their parents and the Tellarite mask. And those are really, really minor bumps in an otherwise very smooth highway, right? Well, all good things must come to an end. I'm sorry, I'm being stupid today. What happens next is they insist that Spock cannot go through with this operation. Spock is like, we have to go through this operation. This is the only possible task. I am ready to go right now. And everyone's like, no, 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 no. Okay. So Spock's like, fine, I'm going to go to the bridge. Spock goes to the bridge, and then, this is hysterical, there's a jump cut, no transition, and Kirk is in the middle of fighting an Andorian. No joke, the first time I ever saw this episode, I thought I had a screwed up copy. Some of you may or may not remember, back in the day when you'd, you'd put in the VHS to record episodes or whatever, sometimes the specific network that was airing it would cut things, uh, sometimes for syndication, sometimes because they needed to make it work, sometimes because for censorship. For example, I didn't know for the longest time that there was a lot of really gory stuff in Predator, the film, because the version I saw didn't have any of that. Now, that's only one example, but I'm, I'm giving that a, to get across the idea of what it was kind of like, you know, watching TV back in the day, for those of you who weren't around for that. So I naturally assumed there was just an edit that I missed, because there's no transition. So here I am, you know, this is, this is 2020 when I'm recording this, and I'm, I'm watching the remastered version, and hey, no, there's no edit. It's just, it just goes straight to the fight. It's one of the weirdest non-sequiturs I've ever seen. But we got to have a fight. Actually, I think this is one of the better fights so far. In, in in season two. It's not super exciting, but it's one long cut, which really helps it. And it's more of a wrestling match, which, act, frankly, I think that style fits. I've actually commented on that bet, uh, before, if you'll remember. I think that style fits the, the, the operation and the action that they're going for. The only complaint I have, and it's really minor, is after Kirk is stabbed, he throws him over his shoulder and then takes a l long time getting back up because he's injured during which the Andorian could easily rush up, excuse me, the Orion, could easily rush up and kill him. But instead, what does the Orion do? He adjusts his outfit while he waits for his other actor to get back to the point where he needs to be. It's a really minor nit. It's a good fight otherwise. <clears throat> I'm curious how many of you are rating the fights along with me as we go through. Huh. Anywho. So he does the fight. Woo! Then... Immediately after this, Kirk is now radically injured, and Spock is now in command. Oh, and there's that ship attacking, which I'll cover in just a moment. So Spock now refuses to relinquish command. This is also the exact same moment. I want to stress the point, by the way. It's been two scenes. Uh, they refuse to do the surgery. Fight with Kirk. We demand you do the surgery right now, Spock. That's, that's the gap there. And they are, frankly, unreasonable in how they approach it. Honestly, he's not exactly great either, but at least he has a reasonable explanation for why he's willing to do it, whereas they're just, like, completely flip-flopping their opinion from literally minutes earlier. Really? <laughs> Come on. Uh, it's worth noting that Spock's, as much as I am coming down a hard on them, Spock's own reasoning is nonsense. I, I have to be in command of the ship. They even say, at least this time, unlike in uh, The Deadly Years, unlike in The Deadly Years, they actually mention you could give command to someone else, in this case Scotty, or Uhura, or Chekhov, or Sulu, who's not there, but, you know, whatever. But they just kind of treat that as a non-option. No explanation is really given 
for why they decide not to give command to Scotty. This is, check this out, this is even funnier. Kirk then goes through this whole shebang to pretend that he's okay to take command of the ship from Spock, so Spock can do the operation. Kirk, by the way, his plan is to take command for like 30 seconds and then give command to Scotty. You can see the logical disconnect here. Now, I mentioned I was going to go kind of easy on this, and the reason why is because, while there is a bit of nonsense going on here and a little bit of drama going on here, I do like the bit where Spock and Amanda confront each other. Amanda gives this whole story about when you were a kid and you were human, and I'm trying to reach out to a human, and you need to do this, blah, 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 blah. It's all decent stuff. I don't have much to say about it except for one really big point. Actually, two really big points. The first is Spock reveals his motivation for why he will not relinquish command. Because the way he phrases it is it seems clear that he understands that, yes, yeah, Scotty could do a decent job, but what would Father think? He says that almost word for word. Can you imagine what Father would say if he knew that I put, put down my duty as a Starfleet officer for the sake of my own personal self-interest, for the sake of one man, what would he think of me? Yeah. In that moment, we see exactly how much Spock cares about the opinion of his father and how much it does matter to him. It's a very powerful moment and a great scene. And, of course, both actors act off each other brilliantly. But this also leads me to my second point, which I referenced earlier. This is something I've talked about in other works, but I believe this is the first time this has come up in TOS. Spock goes to Starfleet to be Vulcan. Now, you've probably heard this theory or this idea before, and you probably had it yourself, but let me try to say this as clearly as I can. Uh, this is actually something that the, the Star Trek Into Darkness, I think? No, it was Star Trek 2009 actually covered this idea, which is hysterical of all the things that 2009 can get right. It's this, this archetype of Spock, because this is... Spock is not Vulcan. He identifies as Vulcan, to put it into such terminology. He clings to the Vulcan part of him and considers that his primary species. But he's not. And it's implied, and elsewhere outright stated, that he was never considered full Vulcan amongst the Vulcans. So despite his incredible achievements, despite being a genius by Vulcan standards, he couldn't actually be perceived as a Vulcan amongst the Vulcans. So he goes to the humans. He goes to Starfleet, where everyone will treat him like a Vulcan. Something about that really amuses me in its horribleness. But it, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Amongst the humans, all they'll ever see is the pointy ears and the logic and all that. And he can safely take comfort in being what he sees himself as. And admittedly, over time, Spock will eventually, by the time of Star Trek VI... Spock will have reached a point where he is comfortable enough with himself to accept the human part of him as himself, rather than a part that he pushes away and can't deal with. In short, to go back to something I've mentioned before, instead of trying to lock it away in the corner and not actually deal with it, he will later on have actually worked through it and accepted and embraced that this is a part of who he is. Right, I brought that up in Bread and Circuses. By Star Trek VI, he's changed his tactic, in short. So this is a really great scene. I don't want to dismiss it. That's good, because then this immediately turns into just kind of... Eh. It's like, okay, we need to do the surgery, and the ship's rocking, and the Orion ship is attacking, and somehow is actually a threat. 
This isn't the stupidest or least thought out thread of the week I've ever seen, but I don't buy it for a second. I mean, I've, I've seen much worse. Oh my god, Transfigurations is all I gotta say about a really dumb thread of the week. No, in this case, it's this one ship which is going super fast and racing by at warp. Let's not even get into that. And attacking the ship so fast that it can't be tracked by weapons. It also is basically set to suicide. It is diverting all power, all reserves to the weapons so that they will effectively burn themselves out and be stranded, even assuming they do actually destroy the Enterprise. So there's a degree of logic there. It's just the whole crux of the matter relies on the fact that they are capable of completely avoiding all attack and then stupid enough to be pulled in by the Enterprise playing dead. It's worth noting that their goal is the destruction of the Enterprise, so there's no reason for them to stop barraging a ship that has stopped moving. You see the, you see why this is just kind of, really? It's not a big deal. The ship ends, the ship ends, well, the, the ship dies in one shot. <laughs> so that's something, at least. And then the episode wraps up and we're done, the end. Overall, I think I feel, this is going to sound like an insult, and I don't mean it as such. I think this episode is a little kind of the Zelda 1 of Star Trek for me. It is the, the establishing point, the bedrock of so much of Star Trek and Starfleet and Federation history that will be expounded upon for literally decades after this point. But I think it's not that great. It's just really good, and then it kind of falls apart. You can really see how Miss Fontana's uh, strength as a writer are all about her ability to write, you know, people, character, dialogue, which is incredibly invaluable for a writer in general, and astonishingly invaluable for a writer of Trek. So, I don't want to sound like I'm dismissing her work here, it's just, I do feel like the threat of the week and the dilemmas both just kind of, eh. Either way, very, very, very good episode. One of the things I want to do someday, and I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on if you want me to do this or not, by now you will have seen uh, the episode I did discussing the goods and the bads and the skips and the, re and the rewatches of TNG and DS9. I've been thinking about doing something a little bit different to visually present TOS and doing a graph and having there be three relative points. You know, good slash rewatch, neutral, don't care, and bad skip, right? And what I kind of want to do is go through a season and watch how much this graph actually bounces up and down as we go through. Because that's kind of how it feels going through it, but I, you know me, I like hard data. Either way, thank you as always for joining me. I'll see you next time.